Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. As a young boy growing up in Sydney, Graham Clark knew exactly what he wanted to be. Over time, his father had become increasingly deaf, which sparked Graham's lifelong pursuit to find a way to give those living with profound deafness the gift of not only sound, but speech recognition. His breakthrough invention, the multi-channel cochlear implant, has done just that for hundreds of thousands of people across the world. I'm Narelda Jacobs. In this episode of 10 News First Person, senior reporter Candace White sits down with Professor Graham Clark, who, at 85 years old, has begun reflecting on his life's work, which all started with a childhood dream. Professor Graham Clark, thank you so much for joining me today. I want to begin at the beginning, strangely enough, and take you back to when you were a kindergarten and you were asked what you wanted to be when you grow up. Can you take me through what you remember of that conversation? Yes, well, it's going right back to the first things I could remember as a child. My kinder teacher said that uh, when she asked me what I wanted to do when I grew up, I said, I want to fix ears. And she was surprised. But uh, the reason was Dad was deaf. He was gradually getting more severely deaf. And even at five, I could tell what a really great difficulty it was for the family, for my mother, and uh, I could... uh, really hope one day that I could do something to help him. I guess she was probably expecting you to say what most little boys would say, that you want to be a fireman or a police officer or a pilot. So I'm guessing she would have never heard somebody say, I want to fix ears, which, as you mentioned, comes from your dad. Can you tell us a bit about him uh, and why he was losing his hearing? Dad was uh, a wonderful father, as my mother was too. Uh, He uh, was gradually losing hearing for reasons even to this day, we're not sure, but it may have been a condition we call otosclerosis, a thickening of the bones in the ear. But uh, whatever the cause, it got progressively worse. He was getting deaf even before he married my mother, And uh, when he learned that uh, nothing could be done and he might get worse, he said to Mum, do you really want to go forward with this marriage? And she said, yes, I'll stick with you. With great support from his parents to follow his passion, Graham studied medicine at university in Sydney. In those days, finishing the ear, nose and throat specialty meant moving to the UK with his young wife, Margaret. But when he returned fully qualified, he'd only been working in Melbourne for a few years when, he says, it was time to turn his attention to what would become his life's work. I was getting a little bored, shall we say, of just 
doing these routine things, I had a fire in the belly. If you could think of it as that, mm. to do research, to make discoveries, and particularly somewhere <clears throat> at the back of my mind to help break the, the barriers of deafness. So we went back to Sydney and I started to do a doctorate of philosophy or a PhD as it's called and learned about auditory brain function and <clears throat> was difficult because I had a lot to learn that I hadn't learned in medicine and the idea of electrically stimulating the inner ear and the brain for hearing uh, loss was an anathema. They, they did not believe that it would work. And I then set about to try to buy electronic gear to stimulate the experimental animal just to see if electrical stimulation would uh, likely help people who are deaf. What were those early materials? What did you set out to buy? What could you find to use to start to make your model? Uh, there were some key things with electrically stimulating in physiology. Particularly, you have to have a, an, shall we call it an isolation unit, an infrared or a way of isolating the stimulus from the brain. And it was only a relatively small unit or item and again I couldn't afford it I went round all the uh, hearing aid dealers in Sydney asking for a donation I think there was a few hundred dollars and most of them said no I'm sorry we can't give you that because uh, if you do have success you'll be in competition with us <laughs> <laughs> but one, one very nice hearing aid company did give me the money and eventually I was able to do this. This small device was a key step forward in developing the cochlear implant we have today, but it might be helpful to have a quick refresher on how the implant actually works. The cochlea in the inner ear receives sound waves from the world caught by your ears. It turns them into electrical signals and sends them to the brain. But damage or profound deafness means it can't do that on its own. An implant allows sound to bypass the ear entirely. Surgically placed electrodes inside the cochlea pick up sounds transmitted through a mic on the outside of the head. That sound is turned into signals that travel through the electrodes in the cochlea and zap the auditory nerve, sending a signal to the brain. Graham says there had been some progress trialling this at the time. People were starting to do single channel stimulation, that is putting a single electrode near or even just into the inner ear and trying to capture sound. Well, anyone can give you, give you some hearing by doing that. A single sound. But our world has a vast spectrum of sounds with varied pitches all at once. Especially in speech. And that is what Graham was searching for. 
You'll hear how he got there after this short break. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So researchers had managed to deliver a single sound like this. But that isn't enough to decipher complex speech sounds. Back to Graham. Explain how, say, the noise of music or a barking dog is different to the interpretation of speech. Speech was the clincher for you. This is what you set out to do from the beginning. Yes. Um, Speech needs high fidelity sound Uh, a barking dog and general noise and clatter is a a a mixture of frequencies that's not very uh, well coordinated I could illustrate this actually on a piano keyboard okay yeah we can do that so we've moved to the piano. <laughs> I didn't know you fancied yourself as Beethoven, but you're a man of many talents. <laughs> well, the piano is a very simple and easy way of explaining how the cochlear implant works. Uh, initially, when people put a single channel electrical stimulation uh, procedure and stimulated the nerve, they did it with just a single frequency. So if you listen now to a low frequency, these can be transmitted by electrical signals to the brain. And that fits in the way the brain codes sound. But the higher frequencies, which are so important, for speech understanding, here and then. These are not produced by electrical signals, by stimulation. What you hear with electrical stimulation, even when you stimulate different sites, instead of you hear and So that was one very important uh, finding we had to learn about, namely that the low frequencies could be stimulated by electrical current at a, a low rate. But after about middle C, after only 200, 300 hertz, the signals went awry and no longer could you hear nice clear sounds which is needed for speech and which could only be given to the patients by multi-channel 
electrical stimulation by putting in a number of electrodes inside the inner ear to stimulate different frequencies. That's incredible. Does that sound simple? And it does. I think it's the best way to illustrate um, the discovery that you made um, and the, the struggle that you had in trying to get those electrodes to do what you wanted them to do. Yes, yes, exactly, exactly right. All right, we'll move back over to the couch. Graham, after discovering how many electrodes you would need to pick up speech and why speech was so difficult to pick up in the first place, where did you go from there? Well, what I had to do was to actually test speech out on my first patient. I'd done as much as I could on the experimental animal not only to see if multi-channel stimulation would work, but also I was obsessed to ensure that it was safe, that there'd be no risk of damage to the very nerves we hoped to stimulate uh, and would infection come in and even cause meningitis. I had to be sure as possible. Because I'll, I'll pause there and clarify that meningitis, for people who don't know, often leads to the loss of hearing. I can see why the risk of developing an infection or meningitis would be completely terrifying for you. It's completely counterintuitive to what you're trying to achieve. Exactly. I mean, that, it works both ways. Yeah. Meningitis can give you loss of hearing. On the other hand, middle ear infections which I saw a lot of in UK, can actually lead to meningitis and even tragically death. So I had to be sure that uh, I would be doing what was relatively safe. Even then, when I went and did my first operation with my colleague Brian Pyman on the 1st of August 1978, Someone whispered in my ears that a colleague had said that I would very likely kill my patient. So that was just one of the many stresses that I was under when operating for the first time. Please tell me they didn't whisper that into your ear on the day of the surgery. No, only a week before. Right. So this goes back to you telling me that your colleagues thought you were a dreamer Um, and even, I think, called you a clown um, for having the idea that you could fix ears. Um, So, in a way, it's workplace bullying, but in another way, you've told me that's what science is. You know, you're meant to contradict each other and come up with different theories and ideas, but how did that make you feel? Well, I was uh, obsessed and determined to try to do what was right and what was... safe and it had to to be done. I mean, we couldn't test out speech understanding on the experimental animal. They don't understand. We as humans are the only species that can understand speech. So I had, therefore, to go and get a patient. I finally, with difficulty, got 
two people referred to me. Rod was, uh, and George, they were both very lovely people and both suitable. Uh, I had to choose. Uh, they came through the back door because no one would send them. Rod, who had had a head injury and was operated for brain surgery because he'd gone stone deaf. So they saw it as an opportunity to hope that it might work for him. And uh, so Rod came and I had to do again what was correct, explain to him all the risks that it might involve, even losing life. I think Rod was definitely uh, keen, and but I made it very clear they could get withdraw at any stage, and all the way I would explain to him uh, and the family where we were and what we'd found, because it was breaking new ground. I was breaking new ground in many areas all the time. When did you become deaf? Where do I live? No. When? When? This is footage of when? Graham and Rod when? in 1978. When? They are sitting opposite each other deaf? filming a pre-surgery interview. Well, if it helps with speech so I can hear it again, I'll be very grateful. OK, so he was very desperate to get his hearing back and you mentioned he had a young family at the time. Mm. Um, so when you set out to perform the surgery, uh, do you remember the day? I can always remember my professorial colleague, Professor Jerry Crock, who uh, was a good friend, standing outside my theatre as I walked past and saying to me, uh, half serious, Professor Clark, this is your day of reckoning. Were you nervous? No, not nervous in a bad sense. One is always uh, alert. And so he walks into surgery, the first of its kind, utterly prepared. Now I had practised this many, many times. I had got it down to a fine art, what sort of drill to use, what to do in various anatomical variations, how to avoid the nerve to the face, because one has to skim over the nerve to the face to get into the inner, or into the middle ear to the inner ear, and it's only a fr fraction of a millimetre away, Otherwise, someone finishes up and they can't move one side of the face. So there are a lot of hazards. It was the first time, really, an ENT surgeon had got down to the lining of the brain. After eight hours, the surgery was complete. About a month later, Rod had recovered and returned for the crucial next step, the test. Was it going to work and could we ever find a way of um, restoring speech understanding as I had promised? So I can't, I can't even imagine uh, the, all the emotions, the excitement, 
um, just everything you would have been feeling on the day that he came back. Um, do you remember? Do you remember that day? I mean, the first day, everyone was uh, on tender hooks. I had to place the aerial over the swollen area so that it, because we were sending signals through to the implant and then the brain by radio waves. So I was right there putting the uh, aerial in place and the engineers were sitting at the consoles and uh, playing uh, and presenting signals. And he heard nothing. No, he said, no, no. And we tried everything, and that whole day, nothing was heard. So we reluctantly sent him home, uh, asked him to come back in three or four days. It was either the engineering problem or a biological problem. Had I made a mistake, I was, uh, I was very um, down. I think the whole team was. What happened when he came back? We did the same routine. Can you hear? No. Sorry. No. So for the second time, he had to go home. Okay. How are you feeling at this point? Well, same as I was. <laughs> so then he came back the third time, some few days later. But this time we were a little more encouraged because the engineers had found what is surprising even today. With all this sophisticated electronic equipment, the thing that was really holding up the works was just a simple, loose connection. <laughs> wow. Okay. So <laughs> that seems like the most minuscule problem. So they fixed the loose connection and he's back for a, what are we up to now, a third time? Yes. And what happens? Well, we wanted firstly to hear him really hear the nerves being stimulated and different nerves being stimulated. So we had to check each of the electrodes in his inner ear to make sure that it worked. The next thing was, did he understand melodies? And the obvious thing to do was to see if he could understand songs that he'd, or rhythms that he'd heard before. And um, the first one that came to mind in those days was God Save the Queen. Not sung these days, but the national anthem then. So we played him God Save the Queen on a single electrode, and Rod did as was customary at the time. He stood up. With, that was his sense of humour, pulled all the leads out of the equipment so we have no record. 
And once, years later, the Queen visited us and I explained this to her, which she was a little amused about. But then we sat him down and quieted him down and gave him our national anthem. We thought, waltzing Matilda. (laughs) (laughs) And he heard that, no problems. But the key thing we had to do was find out how to code speech, how to convert speech into a pattern of electrical signals to go to the brain so he could understand what was being said. But the key for me came when stimulating these different areas, instead of just hearing timbre, that is sharper or duller sounds, as they were called, he actually heard vowels. And when he heard a sharp sound, he heard a a certain vowel, and when he heard a a dull sound, a low-pitched sound, he heard another sound. That sounded like, oh! Here, Rod is doing just that, a couple of months after surgery. That's a very high sharp. He's recognising the vowels and the frequency. So we were able to put two and two together and find that these sounds corresponded to things in the speech signals that called formats or resonances that tell your brain what is the sound that you're hearing. And that then led us to the way to put all the code together to give him a speech processing code and the last, more or less the last day, my audiologist was testing Rod and doing what was called closed set testing, testing him with the words in front of him. And he was doing well. Bale. Bale. Male. Male. Good. And I said to, to Angela, please, let's t- try the, the, the final, ultimate test. Can he be given these words without any lip reading, not seeing them, not knowing what you're giving him? In the recording, Graham takes the slip of paper with the words on it from Rod. Just for fun. The audiologist and Rod are smiling, but they look unsure. We're going to go there. I'm going to Angela didn't want to do so because she thought it would discourage him. But I was persistent. Raw. Raw. What is the pitch? What is the pitch? Good. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Good.
I was so overcome after years of torture and stress, I went into the next door lab and I actually burst into tears of joy. Such was the relief to know. It still wasn't. There was still a long way to go. But that was, for me, the, the turning point. People will probably be surprised to hear that, you know, the moment Rod proved to be a success, things just didn't, you know, take off. It still took many years of hustling for funding um, to do more research, to get industry on board. It wasn't just an overnight success. No, oh, no. And, and we had to improve. The big guns came forward like, from the United States of America and Europe. So we were starting to compete with these uh, elite bodies. So I felt an absolute commitment to seeing that our research got better and better and better and we could more than compete. Since the 70s, the device has come a long way, with more research leading to better technology. Here's what a childhood nursery rhyme might have sounded like to an implant recipient early on. Hard to tell, but that's Hickory Dickory Dock. Now, here's a more modern simulation. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. Since that recording in 1989, the implants have become even more sophisticated, allowing some people to hear speech that sounds remarkably natural. Pretty incredible, especially for a child who may never have heard a nursery rhyme before. And helping kids to hear speech has been at the heart of Graham's work. But I did not want to do children until it was shown to be effective for adults because children have their whole life ahead of them. And so in 1984, 84, uh, the engineers, Cockley by now, were developing a device that would be suitable for putting in children. It had to be smaller. We operate now on children under two years of age and even one and the results are spectacular. Achieving hearing in a child who's never heard before, surely that's the achievement of your, your ultimate dream. Oh, it is. It was what I was passionate about, and it's wonderful. It is wonderful. Everything you talk about blows me away, <laughs> but um, I still can't get over that we go back to this little boy who was five who said he wanted to fix ears and here you are at 85 and you've done exactly what you wanted to do. It blows my mind, Graham. Well, blows my mind. (laughs) (laughs) Senior reporter Candace Wyatt with that story, produced and edited by Sydney Pede. This has been a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. I'm Narelda Jacobs. Thanks for listening. Thank you.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.